And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of Culture Calculus. Of course, I'm Big Waz, a.k.a. Wozny Lambray, joined as always by the lovely, wonderful, and talented Kavitha Davidson. Kavitha, what's going on with you? I keep thinking I need to think of my own nickname now. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to workshop some <laughs> ideas. I'll, I'll help you with the brainstorming session. Really excited about today's show because this brother right here, man, very accomplished cat, used to be the medical director for the Golden State Warriors, now is the NBA's SVP of Medical Affairs. That's a fancy title. <laughs> uh, also, of course, it was with Team USA in Rio as a physician up there, Dr. Leroy Sims. What's going on, my brother? What a way to bring me out. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here with you all um, and really looking forward to the conversation and just happy to be here. Yeah. So we were so excited to talk to you because, you know, we obviously everyone is knee deep in talk about the vaccine, herd immunity. Um, you know, the last year have seen a lot of misinformation, disinformation, a lot of and also just a lot of genuinely changing science. Right. This is something that's unprecedented and that we hadn't experienced before. So, you know, we wanted to talk about you know, your thoughts as a doctor, as a, as, a, as a doctor specifically within the sports world, you know, how this is affecting athletes, what you're seeing from, from the athletes and the patients that you're treating and, and where we can go from here. So I guess my first question for you, Dr. Sims, is what has been the overall messaging to, to players that you've seen to, to get them to understand the importance of this vaccine and to trust it? So my primary responsibility is to educate and it is really important to establish trust in the process of educating. And as a physician, I do that with my patients. I can prescribe you the panacea that will cure what you have, but if you don't trust me, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you don't take it, it doesn't work. So that's the start of it. Um, I'm known to these teams and our players. And so starting from the point of trust and being a credible resource. What my task has been, has been to decode some of the information from the clinical trials as it relates to uh, these vaccines, to give them credible information. Um, there's so much misinformation, disinformation, false information that people are getting, and I'm there to give them the, the real information. And ultimately, hopefully, being a credible source with reputable information will lead people to make an informed decision about getting vaccinated. So that's really been my task. Gather all this information, synthesize it, give it to them, and then ultimately answer their questions. The biggest barrier that people have to getting vaccinated is the questions that they personally have. And so being able to address those has gone a long way towards getting people to understand um, the vaccines and ultimately lead to acceptance of them. You know, I feel a way sometimes when I hear people saying that it's, 
you know, it's the player's job to get America to vaccinate themselves. NBA players, <laughs> it's their job to get the country to get vaccinated. And then I feel like that's also part of a sort of narrative about African-Americans' reluctance to get vaccinated, where if I turn on my TV or look anywhere else, I, there's a lot of white people that don't want to be vaccinated. I mean, that's a whole point, right? Like, there's some very legitimate concerns that the African-American community has about medicine and about vaccines there is a whole other sect of anti-vaxxers who do not fall under that right so what i wanted to ask the doc is like are we educating the guys so they can personally understand what the medicine and the science is behind it or is it more of a push so that they can go out and spread the message as well first and foremost my interest is the individual's health and public health and so that's my role to make sure that these guys understand the details uh, to the extent that they want to know. What is involved in the vaccine development process in general? What went into these vaccines being being developed? The clinical trials, the number of people who are involved, the diversity of people involved in the clinical trials. What were the results of uh, those trials? What were the side effects? What What was the efficacy? That information. And you know what? I appealed to the, our players' sense of understanding of data, of statistics, because they live in that world. They dwell in that realm. Between every quarter, you see them pick up a stat sheet. So I came to them essentially on, on their level of, look, let me present the data. And understanding the data, they go, okay, I understand. I get it, which was great. They asked some great questions during our sessions, really challenged me. And in many aspects, I'll I'll give you one example. You know, someone raised the point of this. If the goal is herd immunity and I'm a young, healthy person, and up until this point, I've managed to avoid COVID, then why don't I just wait for herd immunity and not get vaccinated? That is an extremely thoughtful question and, and one that is a great conversation piece. And we had a great talk about that. How did you answer that? Well, I said, we'll get into that, but really it comes down to the risk. If you haven't had COVID, you're, there's still a risk you can get it. And the health impacts that that can have on you, you could get COVID and not know it and then subsequently spread it to a relative or someone who has a weak immune system. Um, and so that, that risk is real important to understand. And it's not worth it to take that risk. As an ER doctor, I have seen young people. I have seen old people. I have seen people from multiple different ethnicities impacted by this virus. And it's not worth it. The risk is not worth it. And these vaccines are so safe that the benefit from the vaccines far outweigh the small risk. And the risk of COVID is, is we know, detrimental. People have long-term effects from this. People have died from, from the virus. So that, that's how I tackled that. I love that you just talked about the risks because, you know, they snatched the Johnson & Johnson dosage off of the market because a few women reported having blood clots after having taken it. If a player says, well, do I want blood clots instead of COVID, what do you say to them? So we always start from the point of information and getting the most accurate information. So number one, as it relates to what's happening with Johnson & Johnson, This reiterates the fact that we are scrutinizing what's happening. We are paying attention and we're making sure that the the public at large is safe. And when something came up, they hit pause. 
They didn't say, let's continue rolling it out and, and, and get these vaccines in people's arms and we'll investigate simultaneously. They said, no, there's a risk. Let us investigate. I know some people will point to that and go, see, I told you these vaccines are no good. That's just not the case. I'm going to give you data. And this is what makes the case for the most part. 211 million doses of vaccines have been given in the United States of America. That represents 40% of the U.S. population has received one dose, at least one dose of the vaccine. 26% of Americans are fully vaccinated. We have given so many doses of these vaccines out, and we haven't been seeing a, a significant number of adverse events. That is important to know. Now, in the context of what's happened with Johnson & Johnson, when you look at the cases, one is a specific population, women between certain ages, 18 to 48. Two, it's a specific type of clotting that we're seeing with them. But in general, that type of clotting, which is called cerebral sinus thrombosis, the rate of that in the general population is still higher than the rate that you've seen from the data in the clinical trial. So what that is to say is that we are trying to see, is there a correlation or causation there? Or is this something that would have been anticipated based on having given this vaccine to seven plus million people, the incidents in general? So they're working through that and they wanna see if any new cases develop. Is there anything there that gives us pause about proceeding? And this is the scientific method. You have to get the data, you have to review it and be transparent. I think that transparency really makes a big deal. So what I say is, you know, for those who have gotten the vaccine, Johnson & Johnson, if you're more than three weeks out, you have nothing to worry about. If you are within the first one or two weeks, which is when we saw the results of people getting some of these clots, then if you develop symptoms, touch base with your, your medical provider. That's the general approach to this. But um, I think the scientific process is working out and, and working the way it's supposed to. You talk about the importance of transparency, and especially when it comes to getting players to trust you and to trust what you're telling them. It's kind of a double-edged sword, though, right? Because the more information that we have heard from, from scientists, and again, science is always changing and is ever evolving, and that's the nature of it. But it seems that the more information that comes out and the more transparency we do actually get, the more people still want to doubt things. And I'm also wondering, how have we in the media made your job more difficult about the way that we've framed certain things? You know, you talk about the Johnson & Johnson thing, and what drove me crazy when that story broke was every single headline, every single lead paragraph led with blood clots and did not lead with the fact that it was six women in more than six million doses, literally a one in a million incidence of this happening. And there's this New York Post story about how the vaccine could cause, quote unquote, herpes zoster, which is just shingles, by the way. And people are freaking out that now they're going to get an STD uh, from from the vaccine. How do we combat that disinformation from not just reaching the general public, but reaching players who really do have to trust everyone who's around them for where their information comes from? Well, several, several things. Number one, I let the players know that the information that I gave to them when I went presenting to them, I gave a similar that same presentation to my own family. I gave it to my church. I am invested in this and that some of their concerns reflect concerns that even I had. I had a hesitation about getting vaccinated when my hospital said it was going to be available in December. I was like, I'm, I'm not sure. 
And that's that's natural. It's natural for us as humans to question and to be suspicious. That's a part of the educational process. That's why we go to college, that questioning and delving deeper and holding people accountable for the information. I think that's only natural. In terms of the media, what is the media doing? Look, the media has a responsibility and a job, right? To, to, to sell, to get clicks, to get eyes. And so, of course, certain headlines are going to capture people. You asked the question of what has the media done that's made my job a little bit more difficult? I'll point to this. Back in February, there was a big narrative about NBA players don't want to get vaccinated. They're hesitant. And I sat and I thought to myself, how hesitant can someone be about a vaccine that they're not even eligible to get right now? It's not like the syringe and the needle were on the table and they go, mm, I don't know if I want to get that. Pass, it, was, it, was, it was a discussion. We, we were in the discussion phase. So I, I found that to be tough. And when you look at where we are now with how teams are going through the vaccine process and the amount of acceptance from the players, I go, I look and go, the media was wrong. Sometimes in some cases planted a seed uh, of doubt. But at the end of the day, I, I was so impressed and so proud of the response we got from players and team staff when it came to vaccinations. Our numbers were really good. And I'm, I'm very happy with where we are and, and where we've come from, from that point of view. So yeah, I saw the pic that went viral with um, Lugans Dort and Shea Gilgis Alexander, where he's holding his teammate as, you know, he's getting his shot because SGA is, is afraid of needles. And I thought that was a very touching, you know, picture. Like, I thought that was cool. So I do want to talk about the sort of process of getting there, right? Because, you know, we did see a couple of cats come out and say, I ain't taking no vaccine. You know, a, a couple of people. It wasn't like some widespread thing. But this is before, you know, the rollout sort of happened. So what was the process of getting that happen where it's like, all right, league-wide, we're going to be doing this? So on the whole, the vaccination process has been driven by the teams, not the league. What we've done on the league side, we consult with our experts um, and this is largely a collaborative process. People may not fully understand. The NBA is in constant communication with the Players Association. We have our medical experts, they have theirs, and we come together and talk regularly. We come up with policies and protocols. And one of the main ones was, how can we roll back some of the things that are in place for fully vaccinated individuals and fully vaccinated teams? Understanding we're supporting the science and the data. And I think some of those changes to our health and safety protocols were very meaningful, which helped, I don't want to say motivate or stimulate, but, but I think it helped people say, hey, I want to get back to some more normalcy and these changes are meaningful. And so it, it gives, gives me a reason to consider vaccination even more. So that, that's a part of what happened on the NBA side. On the team side, the doctors and the teams work with the local health authorities in concert with the guidance that's there in terms of who is eligible to get vaccinated and when. We did not jump the line. No one got the vaccine outside of uh, what the state and, and local requirements were. And so they worked locally with their health providers to basically procure vaccines and to administer them. In some instances, it may have been a part of a larger um, effort of not just vaccinating the players, but doing some type of community event because we're very cognizant of, of being socially responsible. We talk all the time about not taking resources away from the community. And in fact, 
augmenting the resources that are there. Look at NBA Cares and, and the way we make contributions locally and, and nationally and even internationally. So that's how the process worked. It was mostly team driven, but through the process of educating the players, we were cognizant of updating our protocols to stay in lockstep with the new emerging guidance that was coming out based on scientific evidence and data. Can you share some insight for players who have had COVID and weren't asymptomatic, who did deal with symptoms and side effects, Jason Tatum comes to mind. How are you advising players like that? Are you advising them to change any of their habits? What kind of treatments or just, you know, day-to-day stuff can these players do to kind of assuage some of those effects? So again, the team doctors play the key role there as it relates to the players. And so you you can think about the NBA as being on the one hand, the side that is corporate dealing with the media and the entertainment. The other side is the teams. And so the team physicians are the ones managing the day-to-day care, the team physicians, the athletic training staff, sports performance, et cetera. And so they provide that guidance. But at the same time, when someone does have COVID, the medical advice is somewhat similar. You want to make sure that you're paying attention to the symptoms and you're reporting those. If you're having severe symptoms, shortness of breath, fever, chest pain, things like that, then it's going to require an assessment to make sure that it's not becoming something more significant. In the meantime, you know, things that you do when you're sick, try not to exert yourself, making sure you get a proper, you know, a proper amount of rest, trying to stay hydrated and eating and things like that. Those things become particularly important. And then we have to have the context of the players of how do we get them conditioned? But before we can get to conditioning, you have to understand that for people who have tested positive for COVID, there's a clearance process Um, And we take our guidance from the American College of Cardiology that says that on some level we need to do screening um, to make sure there's no injury to the heart, conditions like myocarditis. So we'll do an ultrasound of the heart or an, an ECG, an electrocardiogram, looking at the heart rhythm to make sure these guys are safe to get back on the court. The risk of those things are really low, but that's a part of the process. But that plays out over a 10 to 14 day process, which is in line with the CDC's isolation process for people who have tested positive. So we know you're a busy guy and we do want to get you out on this. I want to ask you how confident you are if, you know, the right amount of people get vaccinated and do what we we need them to do that this thing is over. Like, how confident are you if those things happen that will pretty much be done with this? I think if we got enough people vaccinated and we hit herd immunity, we would be in that place. But we're in a race to an extent against the virus. The longer the virus is in circulation, the more likely it is to mutate and we're going to have these variants. And the vaccine process is going well in the United States and some other places, but not everywhere. And we need to get vaccines to those places that are not having access right now because otherwise the virus becomes endemic there. But because of globalization, people are going to travel and it's going to continue to spread. So I'm hopeful that we can get more people vaccinated. I mean, 211 million doses given, like that is something else. Like my brain probably couldn't have wrapped, I couldn't wrap my head around that that number a year ago. So I'm thoroughly impressed with where we are, but we have a long way to go. So in the meantime, my takeaways are number one, you know, get vaccinated as soon as there's a vaccine available for you and you're eligible. And anyone who's an adult 16 or older or 18 and older, depending on the vaccine is eligible. So get vaccinated. But if even if you're on the fence about it, then find someone who you know, who you trust, 
get credible information, ask your questions for sure. And then make sure to take care of yourself. I'll send you out on, on my big four. My big four are eating prop, a proper diet, sleeping well, exercising, and reducing your stress. And, and one of the ways we reduce stress is through community, through you know getting in touch with family and friends, not being isolated. So those are the things that I think people can do in the meantime to help us with this pandemic and help us get back to some semblance of normalcy the way it once was. That's so beautifully said. Thank you so much for being on here today, Dr. Leroy Sims of the NBA, man. Thank you for all of this. You packed in so much information in such a small time window. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Waz. Thank you, Kavitha, for having me. And thank you for allowing me this opportunity to share this message and share share some of what I do with your audience. It's such a pleasure to, to be able to have this platform. Thank you so much. Well, and truly, thank you for the work that you do. Pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're going to continue our COVID-19 vaccination discussion. Joining us now, we have NBA writer Sam Amick to talk about everything that we just discussed with Dr. Sims and where the future lies for NBA players and the vax. Well, Sam, last summer, there were concerns that NBA players were getting access to COVID tests when the general public wasn't. Were there similar concerns with vaccine availability this time around? There were. And like you alluded to, the concerns were less than they were when it came to the testing because Because by the time we got to the vaccine stage of the pandemic, I think people started reaching that mentality of, of, okay, the sooner the better for everybody. But the NBA did still have its concerns, went out of its way in its kind of programming and talking points to make it clear that they weren't going to jump the line. But right about the time they were doing that, you know, through kind of various back channels and, and really, I think, kind of through the media, they would also start sending out simultaneous messaging that they're not going to jump the line, but they were hoping that the players, you know, as soon as possible would not only take the vaccine, but would become spokesmen and, you know, kind of help them when it comes to the the marketing, if you will, of, of encouraging people to take it. And, uh, and it certainly hadn't, hasn't gone quite the way I think they were hoping for. What do you think about the messaging part of that? Is it the responsibility of pro athletes to provide an example for the public to get vaccined? Or is that unfair to place on them? No, I think it's unfair in terms of, and to their defense, I don't think they were ever trying to 100% twist the arms of the players and say, you know, do this or else. We all know in today's day and age, that's just not going to happen. I just think they didn't misread the room entirely, but they did a bit. I think they thought there'd be more cooperation. And once they figured out that a lot of players had their concerns, you know, they stopped pushing. It became a slower process like we've seen. But no, it's got to be organic. It's got to be genuine. I think when it comes to this kind of subject matter, if you will, something this serious, this is a player and 
and his or her body, a player in his or her health. And, uh, and it's going to be their decision at the end of the day. Obviously, members of the black community throughout America are skeptical of this vaccine, understandable, frankly, given the, the history, given the medical history. Sure. Was this the basis of players' concern? Were there other concerns that they had in addition to those? I think it was layered. I think it was, you know, partly based in history, partly based in culture, partly based in upbringing. You know, and our culture editor, you know, Khalid Salam and I have had some good conversations about this where, you know, sometimes players can cite the history and tell you specifically why they're concerned. Other times, it's it's maybe a little more of a gray area where they say, well, I, I was kind of brought up to just make sure that I look sec, you know, two and three times at the medical industry and make sure they have my my best interest at heart and don't assume the best. You know, again, like you said, with good reason, a lot of these guys, that's kind of how they were brought up. I think each guy who has had concerns are not taking the vaccine on the NBA side. You know, there's been all kinds of different reasons. I think the one thing that doesn't get talked about as much is that beyond you have the, the youth and the health component where these guys are just used to being, you know, somewhat invincible to and, and kind of impervious to the types of viruses and illnesses that affect the rest of the world. And while there has been you know, a fair amount of COVID that has spread throughout the player community, for one, I don't think that there's been as much awareness among all the players as to how challenging it might have been. Uh, for example, a guy like Jason Tatum just recently came out and shared more detail about his experience and the kind of stuff that probably would give you reason for pause if you were a fellow player. But those stories that might compel you to say, you know what, let me go ahead and get this vaccine, have been pretty slow to come out. And I think players have mostly been deciding on their own what they want to do. Do you think players like Jason Tatum, who were not asymptomatic, who really did feel the effects of COVID, did that shift the perception among players about this virus and what to do about it? It's hard to tell. Uh, admittedly, because of the continued you know, lack of media access with all of us still being remote, you know, it's hard to get a feel for that. I will say for me that so far, the most insight that I got, it was kind of an enjoyable experience because you got to love social media and the way it comes into play sometimes. So Jared Dudley of the Lakers, if you remember, tweeted somewhat skeptical things about the vaccine on, you know, on Twitter. I replied publicly to Jared because he had indicated that the CDC had not approved the vaccine and kind of generalized that idea. I publicly replied and it was like, Jared, come on, man, that's just not true. He made the distinction, and to his credit, he's accurate, that you know there is a different a distinction to be made between kind of a conventional all-the-way authorization versus the emergency youth, uh, use authorization that the CDC put forth. And so that Twitter exchange, I don't think Jared would mind me sharing this, did lead to he and I jumping on the phone and talking about this very topic that we're getting into. And you know, I heard a guy that day that was just nervous that the CDC might have rushed it through, wanted to wait and see and get more data, more evidence and more proof that he was going to be safe, his family was going to be safe if they took it. That part, I 100% understand, whether you're an athlete or not, the general idea that, you know, in, in common sense tells you if anything's getting rushed through the system, you know, you're maybe going to have a, a higher probability of, of a problem. And I think that's where players feel like they've had the luxury of waiting because they are, you know, they're just typically feel like they're impervious to a lot of this stuff. Did you hear concerns from players who aren't black? Were there concerns about the vaccine from white players too? Not that I've heard of. Okay. You know, it's one, again, I don't think this guy would, would mind me sharing. I, I connected with Joe Ingles of the Jazz on this topic and had a little bit of a back and forth about what I had learned about the vaccine versus what he had learned. It was more so like once he got the information, and I don't know whether or not he took it or has taken it, but it didn't you know, the alarm bells weren't quite the same. It's been interesting because I wrote 
a couple months ago about how, again, kind of behind the scenes, the NBA specifically was almost bringing up names like LeBron and Steph Curry and thinking that they would be the ones to carry this flag. And even Steph, again, don't know what he's done, but Steph, I had pursued an interview with Steph to talk about this, and he had chosen not to dive all the way in to, to kind of go down that road. So you see across the board uh, a lot of guys who are just deciding to uh, to kind of keep it quiet here. Waz and I talked to Dr. Leroy Sims, who has been basically leading the charge of holding information sessions about the vaccine among NBA players. You had written with our colleagues Joe Varden and David Aldridge back in February that one team executive estimated that at least half of players were skeptical of getting the vaccine. Do you think that's changed since having those talks with Dr. Sims? I think it's changed, but I'll keep saying it's been slow and it's just not gone like they hoped. Uh, Even Dr. Sims, who, you know, I did a long Q&A with him to learn about this as well. And at the time we got into a, a conversation about the virtual Zoom sessions that he had done with each team. And the way he framed it at the time was that it was, you know, effective across the board, really making a mark. And if I'm being honest, on the on the back end of doing that interview, I just got different feedback from players, different feedback from teams, you know, guys saying, listen, this was 12, 15 minutes before a practice when we're all lacing our shoes up, you know, barely paying attention to a Zoom call with one doctor who, you know, some of them have met, some of them haven't met. And even had one player kind of tell me like, Hey, if you really want us to, you know, go all in on this, you know, get Dr. Fauci on one of these panels and, you know, give us, you know, the heaviest of hitters, if you will. And so the program didn't land, I don't think, the way they were hoping. The one thing that they did, you know, in the second wave that I do think made a a serious mark is that when they created the rules that basically said that once every team gets to an 85% threshold, on vaccinations on the roster, that's players, as well as the organization, then the COVID restrictions and a lot of the rules that are making their daily lives pretty problematic right now, those get lifted. And so once you started incentivizing these players and these teams, I think, you know, then you get past the 50% mark that you mentioned, but they're not there yet. I mean, I, I talked to some league officials recently, and I mean, one of them even handicapped that by the time the playoffs came around, You know, they were hoping to be up at like the 60% mark. And I'm talking about teams that met the 85% threshold. Frank Vogel, the Lakers coach, pretty candidly said the other day that the Lakers aren't there. And, you know, I think that uh, they are past that 50% mark from what I can tell as far as players league wide, but they're just, they're not in the place they want to be going into the playoffs. And for basketball purposes, you do wonder what it might mean, right? I know that doesn't matter nearly as much as the larger kind of ramifications we're talking about. But, you know, I think there is going to be a a COVID cloud, if you will, hanging over the postseason when it comes to, you know, guys possibly missing time. Why not just get Fauci on the phone? I mean, Steph had him on his podcast last year, right? (laughs) Like, like why not? Yeah, yeah. I can't speak to that. I don't know why. And again, I, you know, Dr. Sims is a wonderful spokesman when it comes to having the credentials, also being a black man, also being somebody whose personal story is very relatable, you know, and he, he kind of, you know, meshes that into his message. So he, you know, I think he's a great spokesman, but yeah, like, you know, you, you probably should have gone 
Avenger style and have Dr. Sims <laughs> with three or four more people like him to get this thing over the finish line. In talking to Dr. Sims, who obviously is immensely qualified, and as you said, also from the community, was the team doctor for the Warriors. So he's been in, in, the, in the NBA community in particular for a while. But I, I was just a little bit struck by the idea that we've talked a lot in recent years about being skeptical about team doctors in general, right? About players needing to have their own outside medical advice and that kind of thing, and why that would be different with something like a vaccine or like a global pandemic. Right. hundred percent. Cause as, as good as, as Dr. Sims might be as a spokesman, you know, he's still an NBA employee. I think mm-hmm. if I was a player, that would be the one thing jumping out at me is, you know, give me an outside voice, give me somebody, you know, whose objectivity or, or whose kind of interest uh, I'm not going to question in the slightest. And again, to make it clear, I'm not questioning Dr. Sims. I'm trying to put myself in the mind of, of these athletes as an aside. And it was interesting how this crossed my phone right before we hopped on today, you know, we're seeing this all across the country and across the world, right? Like there was something went viral. Joe Rogan on his podcast essentially came out and said that he thought 21 year olds and people of that age, you know, kind of generation didn't need to worry about taking the vaccine and and then gave this long spirited reason for why he thinks that's the case. So there is still this sentiment in society that, you know, the youth and the healthy youth are above this. Now we know that's not the case. They're just, you know, more protected than others. That's why for me, I do think for sports purposes, in this case, the NBA, it goes back to the incentivizing. You know, you can cut through all this stuff by just basically saying, listen, your life's going to be, you know, just a whole lot less annoying on a daily basis if you go ahead and get this shot. Because if you don't, then you can't hang out with who you want to hang out with. You can't go to the restaurants you want to go to. You can't get back to quote unquote normal life at all. And, And chances are, If you stray from those rules in the middle of the first or second round of the playoffs, you're going to be on the shelf for 10 to 14 days and and your hopes and dreams of winning a championship might be out the window. Can you give us the latest on Orlando Magic coach Steve Clifford? I don't have a great sense of of Cliff. You worry anytime there's certainly an older gentleman. The fact that he was asymptomatic was, was great news. You know, uh, but I don't know where that stands. I know there was hope early on that maybe it was even a, a false positive, but um, but I hadn't gotten the update on that front, unfortunately. Do you think that the fact that he did test positive after getting the shot will engender more skepticism in players? Yes. Well, the place my mind went immediately when you asked that question, Kavitha, was that even the media side, so, so we've been having conversations with the league about what is playoff access going to look like and is there a chance that we can get back in that space and do our job in a normal way? And one of the responses we have gotten was in fact that, and I don't know if this was Cliff or another example, but was in fact that they had had people who had been vaccinated who tested positive. And so any premise that, you know, vaccinated media members would be a complete, you know, non-factor and not harmful at all to players, coaches that we might be around. You know, that was certainly kind of being used as leverage to cut through that idea. And uh, I do think, yeah, there's, again, just the common sense side of it. You look at it and say, of course, a player is going to say, and Cliff got vaccinated and he still get tested positive. What am I doing it for? And, and that's where I know I'm a broken record here, but the what am I doing it for is going to have to come back to, well, because you get a, a bunch of, you know, rules lifted and, and just a, a better life. More general freedom than what freedom. That's the word. Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. Right. So we don't have latest stats or anything, anything definitive about the number of players that have been vaccinated. We don't. I have anecdotal stuff. I, you know, I talked to a team. Last week, where uh, I thought it was interesting because, and I, you know, I don't put, I don't want to put the team out there, but mm-hmm. right when they first opened up vaccines for their squad, I think they had a grand total of four guys 
take it, you know, and it was a little bit of a disappointment that it was going to be a tough road for their team. You know, I've talked to other teams where it's more a 70 or 80%, you know, like they're almost to the 85%, but the league is not sharing that. Even the media stuff has been interesting because the, the teams, you know, they are announcing like De'Aaron Fox is in COVID protocol now and he's out 10 to 14 days. You can connect dots and figure out you know, what he's dealing with, but, you know, teams don't announce whether or not a player tested positive versus broke protocol. And so there's just a a real blind spot for us on exactly where things stand. But I think in general, I I do feel confident saying that, you know, by the time we get to the playoffs, if I had to pick a number, and again, to be transparent, I'm handicapping here, but I feel like it's probably going to be, you know, like in the 60 to 70% range of players that have been vaccinated. I think there's going to be a pretty fair amount that have not. Are you hopeful going into the playoffs? Are you hopeful for just the rest of what this calendar year will look like for these players? For the players, that's coming into play too, is that the NBA, and this will answer your question, but if you go back to that media component, right? Mm -hmm. One of their things at the moment is that they've made it this far, even though there have been fits and starts, there have been absences, they have found a way to have, you know, a fairly entertaining season. And so now the, the fear is, you know, just getting this thing over the finish line, getting it done. And they are somewhat hopeful, but they know that it would be a far better landscape if these vaccine numbers were up at 90, 95%. They could breathe a sigh of relief and they simply can't right now. So I'd probably, you know, fall more on the side of hopeful, but, you know, mildly pessimistic because of the level of of kind of pushback that there has been with vaccines. And to go back to the example I just mentioned, you know, the Kings are not going to be in the playoffs, but De'Aaron Fox is an elite player, best player on their team. If the Kings were a playoff team, if this happened a couple weeks from now, that essentially kind of, you know, unofficially kills the, the Kings narrative and their season and, and their playoff path, if you will. And that scenario is still going to be very much in play for every team that is there in the playoffs. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to name specific teams, but do you think or have you found that teams that are expected to go deep in the playoffs are more receptive to taking the vaccine because they've just got more to lose? I would say this. One of the ripple effects of this generation of NBA player and athlete that we are seeing is that I don't even know how much it matters how much like organizational will there is because organizations for the most part on this kind of a thing they leave players in their space Mm -hmm. you talk about you know respecting them as people and their privacy and their power and all those things like the Milwaukee Bucks are an interesting example they just announced that they are providing I think it's the Pfizer uh, vaccine to fans who come to games that are 16 years or older so there you have you know, certainly a progressive leaning organization with the Lazarus owning it and pushing it a certain way. But I don't know if that has any direct correlation to the numbers in the, in the Bucks locker room. And I don't have any insider intel there, like where Giannis is at, mm-hmm. guys of that ilk. But I don't know necessarily if there is if those two things connect, if that makes sense. I think you can have a lot of organizational will and still have, I mean, the Lakers are a great example. LeBron, when asked about the vaccine publicly, you know, it's very fair to say uh, came off extremely skeptical and got real guarded about how that's something that me and my family are, are going to make a decision on. And, and so I don't think it matters if Jeannie Buss wants, you know, all NBA players to get vaccinated. You know, somebody like LeBron is going to do what he wants to do. That's so fascinating about the Bucks. I've actually wondered why 
more teams haven't done that to just provide that for fans who are coming to games if they're already right. using their arenas as vaccination centers. I wonder if Alex Lazary's uh, Senate run next year has something to do with that. Maybe sure. a little yeah. bit. <laughs> are there players who, you know, it's obviously not LeBron and not really Steph, but are there players who are taking the lead on this or who have been vocal either behind the scenes or to the media about wanting to kind of rally the troops? The only one who comes to mind, and I'm probably missing a few, but, you know, we all at this point know the incredibly sad story with Carl Anthony Towns and his family. And, you know, he has, I forget if it's in the form of NBA Cares commercials or just interviews, but I have certainly seen Carl speaking openly about the vaccine, encouraging people to get it. And I do, not to jump on my own little kind of bully pulpit, but it, it is, it does sadden me a little bit that the only player who seems to be that outspoken is like, why does it have to be the guy whose mother passed away and who lost all these relatives? Like, there is part of me, and I'm admittedly being subjective here, but just that wishes that his story, you know, would scare some of these other guys in the kind of way that would put them in the same place. Because of course, Carl Anthony Towns at this point is going to share this kind of a message with everything he's been through. He's in that mode of what can I do to, to protect the rest of my family, protect myself. And so you have not though seen a lot of current players. You've seen the old heads, you know, Bill Russell did a mm -hmm. commercial, Kareem did a commercial, Greg Popovich on the coaching side, but that fits into that, you know, those are the old folks. Those are the ones who, of course, anybody of that age needs to go out and get the vaccine. I think that's where there just hasn't been momentum on the player side is that to my recollection, it's mainly kind of begun and, and ended with Carl Anthony Towns and then a whole lot of silence everywhere else. Yeah, I remember interviewing our Wolves reporter, John Krachinski, after all the stuff went down with Kat and just the hope at the time that it would convince some players to get the vaccine to adhere to protocol and it just seems that that hasn't translated as much as we thought it might how much of a responsibility do we in the media have for scaring these players about about the vaccine i asked dr sims about this too when the blood clot issue with johnson and johnson came out every headline that i saw every tweet that i saw mentioned the blood clots and didn't mention that it was literally six in six million doses that, that, right, and, and right. all women right are the collective we do we bear some responsibility here maybe i think you know i don't know where to place the blame that one for me you know that was a maddening situation because like you said it was you know six and that's not to diminish anything that happened with those women but right when the, the johnson and johnson story came out you know the first kind of Twitter feed that I tried to pay attention to was Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who I've actually had on my podcast before and who's frequently quoted in the New York Times and, and is a, a virologist. And Dr. Rasmussen had broken down numbers and had this viral tweet that was like, essentially, you know, far less risk than birth control, far less mm -hmm. risk than all these these different things that are routinely... Far less risk than COVID. <laughs> than COVID, yeah, 100%. That was actually the kicker in her tweet. That was the last line was... So there's always that built-in, you know, fear element in media and the way things get packaged. This one, though, I feel like, you know, this train kind of started way farther back on the track. I think that, like we said at the, the top of our conversation, Kavitha, that it's, it's that combination of cultural, but also just the age thing is huge. These guys are in such an incredible shape and they micromanage every single thing that they put into their bodies, especially in this era. You're talking about, you know, the, the supplement side, the, you know, the legal ones, hopefully, um, the nutrients and, you know, they just clearly were not feeling the idea of pumping this vaccine into their arms that had not really been tested on the market, so to speak, beyond the immediate emergency use authorization. I, I just think that they took the wait and see approach 
the problem for the NBA is that the playoffs are not waiting and, and you know, and, and that timeline continues. Well, yeah, for players, like you said, who micromanage everything they put into their bodies and have a whole team of doctors outside of, of the ones that the league and the team provides them. Right. You would think that they would have at least one personal physician who would recommend that they get this vaccine. I agree. I also wonder, too, though, if, you know, for all the time I spent saying, you know, that incentivizing them was going to be a game changer. I think maybe the opposite is a little bit true too. If, if they have gotten somewhat used to operating within these restrictions, mm. I could see some of them saying that in terms of the societal at large uh, perspective, meaning let's say I was trying to argue with a player who didn't want to take it and say, you know, my God, can you just do it for the country, for the world? We need as much, you know, herd immunity as possible. And for their response to be, you know, you don't get it. I don't really see very many people. I'm not endangering anybody. I'm not, you know, I'm, I have enough money that when I go home, I got a big place and I'm in my own space. And then on the road, you know, we stick to our group. Um, you know, I could see them saying that, that they don't feel like they bear the same societal responsibility that maybe we feel like we do. And, and maybe there's some logic in that. But I think mainly, and going back to like the Dudley conversation, what I learned that day was that it was just a matter of player and a person who wanted more hard data where you tell me that, you know, X thousands of people have gone through this and been just fine. And it's, it's having the desired benefit and it's worth it. He just wanted more data and, and wasn't comfortable right out the gate taking it. Well, finally, Sam, does the NBA have contingency plans in place in case come playoff time, some team has a bunch of guys who test positive or some team has, you know, some kind of adverse thing happen because of not vaccinating. Is there is there some kind of plan? Would they delay playoff games? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know their plan right now. I'm sure, you know, we if we think they have two plans, they probably have 20. That's, <laughs> you know, that's probably the type of reality. But I also do sense, and this contradicts what I just said, I, I definitely sense that there is real apprehension and just a good old-fashioned fingers crossed type attitude going into the playoffs because I've seen it a couple times already when they pulled off the bubble in Orlando successfully, you know, it wasn't until the very end when they, you know, celebrated the Lakers championship and Rachel Nichols of ESPN was congratulating them all on the floor. When all the confetti went away, they finally turned to us media folks and, and essentially admitted like, oh boy, yeah, like we did not think we were <laughs> going to get through that, you know, and, and they were feeling lucky and that they were even we scared away with along. One. Yeah. And I think there's a little bit of that now. They, they're trying to get through you know, the most challenging period that pro sports has ever faced. And a lot of us just life in general. And they feel like by the time they get to next season, normalcy is going to be a lot easier to pull off. But right now I, I do feel like, you know, it's, it's that they feel like they've luck, gotten lucky to this point and trying to get it done. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see too, right, Sam? We will, Kavitha. I, I got yeah. my second shot and got through my my aches and pains and uh, feeling like a, a Superman. So I'm good. There you go. I'm fully yeah. vaccinated and I'm going to a baseball game tonight. So. Nice. I like it. <laughs> I like it. See, NBA players, take notice. <laughs> all right, Sam, thank you so much for joining us and breaking all this down. You got it. Thanks, Kavitha. All right. Thanks for joining us on Culture Calculus for Wozni Lambre. I'm Kavitha Davidson. See you next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.